Welcome to Gangray the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Michael J. Mooney. This is Mooney's second time on the podcast. He was on episode two talking about the most amazing bowling story ever. Unfortunately, we lost that episode when we moved the podcast from one website to another. So now Mooney is back and talking about his story, My Brother the Murderer, which ran in D Magazine in January 2016. Um, it is about a uh, very old murder, uh, unsolved murder in Dallas, um, and a woman in Oklahoma who um, believes that she knows who the killer is. Mooney is a contributing editor at D Magazine in Dallas. He's also written for GQ, ESPN The Magazine, Grantland, and Outside Magazine, among many others. He's also the co-director of the Mayborn Literary Nonfiction Conference, which is held every July in Grapevine, Texas. We talk about that conference and what is in store this year. And uh, and it's great, you know. So a lot. It's kind of some part professional advancement conference, some part summer camp, some part family reunion. As usual, we've linked to several of Mooney's stories on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is uh, you are officially the first repeat guest on the podcast. Um, I think you were episode number two, which unfortunately is now gone missing. It's no longer on the website. I cannot find a file of it anywhere, and so I thought it would be a good time to to revisit revisit uh, your writing and your stories. So thanks a lot for uh, coming here. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, first time we talked, we talked about, uh, the most amazing bowling story ever. And I had no clue what I was doing as a podcast <laughs> host or anything. Uh, so hopefully this one will be a little bit better. So, um, but uh, I still have no clue what I'm doing when it comes to talk about talking about writing. So, <laughs> I'll just try, I'll, I'll try and, uh, try and wing it. Okay. That sounds good. Um, so, uh, let's start off by talking about your story, My Brother, the Murderer, which ran in D Magazine in January of 2016, so just a little more than a year ago. Um, can we start off by having you read that opening scene? Yeah. yeah it, uh, okay. Grover Hope was sitting at home on an unremarkable Sunday afternoon when the phone rang. For decades, Grover was a successful businessman, a title partner in a busy construction firm in North Dallas. His career was built on trust and good decisions. He was active in his Baptist church, raised four children, and built a lifetime of powerful clients and friends. He's 87 now, long retired and living with his second wife on a tree-lined street between Bent Tree Country Club and the ultra-exclusive Preston Trail Golf Club. His voice is deep, ruminative, and he's sparing with words. He's polite but deliberate. He didn't recognize the number that Sunday, so he didn't answer the call. Caller left a message, though. If this is the Grover Hope who was married to Jean Hope, please call me, the woman in the message said. Grover didn't recognize the voice, but he'd been married to Jean Hope for nearly 17 years, until she was murdered one morning in 1970. The crime drew a lot of local attention when it happened, and for years afterwards. Jean was a beautiful, popular young mother of three. The murder was particularly brutal, and the police never made an arrest. Grover had helped detectives investigate, showing up at the station regularly to ask about progress offering reward money, taking out ads, hiring a psychiatrist to draw a personal sketch of the killer. When he heard the message that afternoon, he immediately picked up the phone and called the number back. The woman briefly introduced herself, then said this, Mr. Hope, I know who murdered your wife. 
Thanks for reading that. That's a great, uh, really great introduction to the story. Um, I know, uh, I guess uh, for starters, can you talk a little bit about, so that kind of sets up what the story is going to be about, um, this, this murder from many, many years ago. Can you can you describe just a little bit more about what, what the story is about? Yeah, so um, it is about a uh, very old murder, uh, unsolved murder in Dallas. Um, and a woman in Oklahoma who um, believes that she knows who the killer is. Um, and uh, not to, you know, she believes that it, the killer was her brother. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know this comes up in the story itself, but can you talk a little bit about how, how you found out about this? It's a really interesting uh, yeah, so, way, I think. Yeah. Um, she, we, we were putting together a crime issue uh, at D Magazine. Um, uh, one of the first kind of, uh, theme issues, uh, and right around, and I was actually working on a different story to that issue. Um, and there were kind of some weird delays and, and things that were, uh, going less easy than expected. And right at that time, she wrote a letter to the magazine, this, uh, this long letter, uh, where she outlined her life and her theories about this old murder. Um, and uh, so I immediately contacted this woman and started researching the murder and started reaching out to anybody who might have been alive then or might know anything about it, including uh, crime reporters and police from the time, and, uh, and basically tried to see... I tried to look into her theory as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, this woman is named Angela Hans, by the way. Right. Um, so the first, se- so like we, we, you read the first section of the story, which which starts with Grover Hope, um, and then the second section goes into Angela Hans. Uh, and one thing I was wondering, because the the first section is is incredibly compelling. I mean, when you end with, um, I know who murdered your wife. Um, that's something that, of course, is going to make a reader keep reading. But I was also wondering. Um, the next section is also incredibly compelling. I'm, I'm curious about how you made the decision of what what to lead with. Did you go back and forth as to whether or not you should lead, uh, lead with Angela or Grover, or, or what was that like in, as you sat down to write the story? I mean, I, I think I wanted to start with that phone call um, and wanted to get both sides of the phone call uh, explained pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that's just an intriguing, dramatic moment, obviously. Mm-hmm when somebody calls you out of the blue and says, I know who murdered your wife. Um, and it also establishes these two main characters uh, who are very interesting people. Um, and, you know, and, and they were briefly related to each other through marriage, but they are incredibly different people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, um, what was it uh, on, on working on this story? Uh, what was it like to interview Grover and to have him talk about such a horrific event? And, and I know um, the the story takes some weird twists and turns, and I'm trying really hard not to like to to mess anything up in case people haven't read it yet. Um, but what was it like to, to talk with him? Uh, it, it was intense. You know, it's uh, obviously talking to the victims of crime anytime is, is going to be intense, right? Mm-hmm. The spouse of somebody who, who was murdered, um, that is a, uh, a, a dreadful, worrisome thing. Uh, and going into that 
company. You know, it's a call you just never want to make. It's just terrifying. It's it's awful. Um, he was very stern, very serious. Um, you know, he made it. Uh, he he was not a big fan of the idea of another story about mm-hmm. this murder. Um, and uh, and we talked for a really long time the first time we talked. And uh, and it, and it was. I mean, it was exhausting personally for me, right? It, it was just draining because it was very emotional. He discovered his wife's body. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I interviewed him again after uh, doing more and more research into this. And uh, one of the things that I, that I discovered is were these insurance policies that were taken out on the wife uh, and that were paid about a week before the murder and the benefactor being the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and this was something that was not mentioned to the police and not mentioned at all in the investigation, even though he had spent all this time helping them. And so that was uh, kind of suspicious. It was kind of strange. And so I, I needed to call him back after he kind of told me he didn't want to talk to me again. I needed to call him back to ask him about these things. So we had another pretty long conversation that had a slightly different tone. Right. Um, and it was also intense for different reasons. Uh, also a phone call that I didn't particularly want to make. Um, and so it was, uh, I mean, as, as reporting goes, it's that's some of the most intense kind of call reporting, sitting down, you know, these kind of, uh, long, elaborate conversations. This is some of the toughest things that I have to do. Yeah, you, um, you, you wrote the the story on the woman, um, Lois, Lois Peterson. Am I, am I saying that right? Is that right? That's right, Lois Peterson. Yeah. Um, which was also, I think, probably uh, probably not exactly the easiest interviews either. Uh, how did this compare in terms of the two? The inter- you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Very different. Uh. So. Lois Pearson, um, she had been kidnapped by a former neighbor of hers and tortured for 12 days, and he planned on killing her. And uh, she escaped from the police game, um, and so she was saved. Um, and uh, she is a very different person from either of these two people, mm-hmm. from either Angela or Grover. Uh, and she was essentially a recluse most of her life, but uh, she was incredibly forthcoming when we talked. Mm-hmm. The first thing that she told me, uh, and this is a 65-year-old woman, the first thing she told me, not even hello, was that she was a virgin when this happened to her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, incredibly revealing. Um, you know, shockingly so. Um, so that was almost like holding on to some sort of fire hose of dramatic information and just not getting knocked over, mm-hmm. whereas this one was uh, a much more, uh, I, I don't know exactly what to say it, but it, was, it, it involved uh, me trying to figure out the right questions to ask, right. as opposed to with Lois, it was, it was, you know, I barely had to ask anything, and if I did mm-hmm. ask a question, it was, what happened next? Right, right. Did you, uh, did you know about this case before you got that letter? No, I didn't. I don't think I'd ever heard of this, um, even though D Magazine had done a previous feature about this mm-hmm. in 1975. Um, I had not heard about this murder 
And so uh, finding the old clips and reading through the old newspaper stories was really interesting. And, and also fascinating to see the way people wrote in newspapers not even that long ago. Right, right. What I mean, so you did a so lot of... Tiny. Say that again? I said it just sounds so old-timey. Right, The way right. that newspaper, for, newspaper crime was reported in, uh, you know, the, the early 70s. So you did a lot of archival research um, for yeah. the story. And wh- what was that like? Had you, have you, had you done that before? Yeah, I love going through old newspapers. That is one of my favorite things to do as a reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pulling up either microfilm or old uh, archives and uh, just... Because you not only look at the story that you're reading about, but you see what else is in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the way that, you know, just as a, as a journalism uh, person, you see the way that journalism was done then um, and the differences. And, and this is right around, like, Watergate era. Mm-hmm. So, like, this was just the kind of standard practice in metros. The... Uh, um... In terms of writing the story, what was the, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that reporting it was, uh, at least as far as the interviews go, that that was that was difficult um, with Grover, uh, at least. Uh, how about writing in, in terms of actually putting the story together? What were some of the biggest challenges that you encountered? So this is the thing about crime writing. The reporting is by far the most difficult aspect. You know, uh, mm-hmm. um other stories, profiles, scene, sceners, as, as people call them, um, where you have total access to everything, those are way harder to write for me because it's more difficult to figure out where it's going to begin, right. you know, what it's about, what the actual story that you're cutting out of everything else is, what you're not leaving, you know, what, what's not going to be in the story. A crime story, uh, once you have all the material, is easier to put together because this happened, then this happened, mm-hmm. then this happened. And it's easier to see when you have to explain who this person is, you know, what information you have to give to the reader. Um, it's easier to determine what goes, what can be cut out. Um, you know, for the Lois Pearson story, it was uh, my editor at B Magazine, Tim Rogers, basically said anything that you truly would not want to read about. So at some points, the torture got incredibly right. uh, awful. And there are just things that we definitely didn't want to put in a magazine story. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this story, it was trying to get all the information uh, that we had in the story without, you know, wrongfully implicating somebody who might not have committed this murder, mm-hmm. but also showing all the possible people who may have done this, mm-hmm. or as many as we could find. Right. Right. And this story. Um... In many ways, uh, a lot of times when I think of true crime writing, I think of stories that that ultimately is wrapped up nice and neat at the end. Um, and that's not necessarily the case in this piece, is it? No, no. And, it, and, and it's really rare. Um, you know, it, just the nature of, of criminal behavior, it's really hard to know exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is no definitive answer. Um, for this murder, or a lot of murders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, GQ ran a great story a year or two ago from Sean Flynn about this murder in France that was, that they, I think they called like the perfect crime, that there's a family was slaughtered, uh, a biker, nobody knows who was the target, nobody knows who was in an accident or what happened, uh, but it looks like this incredible precision killing. 
and the entire and it's you know probably eight thousand ten thousand word story and at the end there's no answer mm-hmm. but it's still interesting to read for us right um, making a murderer was was one of the big first ones uh, that that did this uh, recently and kind of I think in a lot of ways revitalized our interest in true crime mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and and you know there's no definitive answer in that one either mm-hmm. right right um. How much time did you spend on the story? You and also kind of I can I guess um I guess I want to back up a little bit. So you how I guess you can answer that question, but I'm also curious as to how you found out about the insurance policies. Okay, yeah. So I um I spent about a month on this total. Mm-hmm. And I found out about the insurance policies probably in the last week. Okay. Wow. And it was um, just tracking down. I, I was looking at old lawsuits, mm-hmm. and uh, Grover and his children were part of a lawsuit uh, about taxes on a probate case, mm. right? So a, a suit that is, and I think honestly, the ones I was looking at were appeal were appeal uh, files. So you know, it was basically by accident right. that I stumbled upon these insurance policies. And I wasn't even sure what I was looking at. And I actually saw them once, kind of just brushed them aside because the language is so dense and it's really hard to understand exactly what's going on. And only, the, you know, another time, really not that long before the story was due, did I look at this again and was like, wait a second, this is something totally different. Mm-hmm. And then immediately had our the lawyers at the magazine look at these documents to make sure I was right, um, you know, told editors about this. And was like we have uh, new information that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not saying that that is, and, and, and you know, uh, our instinct as people, uh, as consumers of fiction and, and fictional movies, it, you know, we want some sort of nice, tidy package. Mm-hmm. We want that that information, that insurance, to be somehow an indication that Grover Hope murdered his wife, and. You know, it is what it is. Is just new information we didn't have before. Right. Um, you know why he didn't tell the police? He says he completely forgot about it. Um, you know, that's for somebody. Uh, somebody else is going to make decisions on why each of these things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it, it was, and it was interesting for me. You know, if we're looking, at, so now all of a sudden we have a lot of different information about an old murder, and we're, and you know, we sit around and we're like, I think this is actually a story. This is worth. This is a magazine story, right? Definitely. Let's switch. Uh, let's switch uh, modes. I don't. Modes is the wrong word, but let's let's switch uh, paths here and, and talk about another one of your stories. Uh, ran on Bleacher Report in September. Weekend at Johnny's. Uh, yeah. This piece is um, fantastic. Uh, it kind of t- t- talk a little bit about uh, about what you, what you do in the piece. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, this was. Uh, this was uh, part of the Bleacher Report magazine, BR Mag, um, that's uh, developing pretty well, I think, now. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really, really glad to be a part of this, uh, especially in the early phases. And uh, Matt Sullivan, who's an awesome editor, uh, reached out to me. We talked about various stories. And, and I've been fascinated by Johnny Manziel. And there have been a lot of good Johnny Manziel stories. Wright Thompson did, mm-hmm. you know, what I... Uh, considered the definitive Johnny Manziel story in a lot of ways. Um, before he, you know, before, but that was before he entered the NFL. Right. And so we had this whole new 
life where he had basically been out partying and partied himself out of the NFL. You know, right. that's frankly what he did. He partied himself out of professional football. And so I was fascinated to, and, and it just felt like a public meltdown in so many ways. And in, in, at a time where, you know, you just don't see that very often, especially out of athletes, you know, as such, if, if there's a meltdown, it's in private, you know, mm-hmm. if there's, something that happens, it's out of the public eye. And this time it seemed like it was always in the public eye. Um, and so that concept fascinated me. And so we talked about the idea of me going to every one of the places that he had been seen partying in public. And so then I tried to put together a list and this it was, it was, it was too many places. I mean, it was right. something like 30 or 40 places right. at least before I was like, okay, so I'm not going to go to every single one of the places. <laughs> then we pinpointed, we tried to pinpoint, I think 10 or 12 or 15 or something of the main ones that right. I could go to. Um, and then just talk to the people who were there when he was there and, and see what he saw and, you know, see what kind of insight this could give us in this, uh, into this young man's life. And I think one of the really interesting things is that, that, that your travels actually brought about this understanding that, you know, all the tweets that we saw, they weren't necessarily accurate in terms of, um, when he was exactly doing something, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it, he had become, it had become such, it, it, it had gotten so ridiculous that basically he could not be parodied. Um, and so, and we were willing to believe virtually anything about Johnny Denzel. Mm-hmm. You know, after, after the Browns cut him, uh, at some point during the draft, draft, draft night, there was a tweet going around of him at a bar watching TV, and it looked like he was watching the draft, and and, you know, it said he was watching the draft. And so I went to that bar. It turns out, no, he was there, and that picture was taken that night. But it was like several hours before the draft. And during the draft, he was at a Justin Bieber concert. Right. Uh, and then after, and then later that night, he was buying a bunch of shots in an entire different bar. Um, and uh, the story of him in Las Vegas, you know, playing blackjack and like a <laughs> fake mustache and wig. Uh, and, you know, I looked into that, and... Part of the story is, you know, he paid cash for his food over at this other bar. Went to the bar, and they don't sell food there. Right. And I talked to a bunch of people at the casino, and nobody remembers him being there. Um, you know, it's a, it, but but at the time we were just so willing to believe it because it sounded like, you know, it was a an extension of these other absurd stories we'd heard or or images we'd seen of him floating on a duck or, right. you know. Having a mug shot with no shirt on. Right. What? Uh, so, what? What made you decide to to start? You kind because you the story starts in Columbus uh, on on that the day of that draft, and you end in Columbus. So, why? 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 Um, what made that the place you wanted to begin in the in the piece? That just seemed to epitomize the uh, the public partying that he was doing, and the strange misconceptions and misinformation that was coming out about him publicly partying at the same time. Yeah. You know, he, in one night he did go publicly, take a bunch of shots by himself, uh, on draft night and then did go buy $2,000 worth of drinks for strangers and party in a DJ booth and, you know, slam fireball and, uh, a bunch of crazy things, but it still wasn't exactly the sad, preconceived, you know, down while watching somebody, you know, right. the image of this, you know, of this failed quarterback watching 
the coronation of the next people taking his job. And, you know, it was just, it seemed too good. And it was not true, right? It right, was right. just, that's not how he was handling it. Right. And it's kind of sad. It almost, <laughs> you almost wish he had handled it that way. You know? I mean, it's, they're both sad, right? Right. I think we wanted him to be more sad than he was. Right, right, right. Have you been have you been paying attention to to some of his tweets now? I think didn't he 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 tweeted at Donald Trump and told him to stop reading the uh, uh, the responses to his tweets. Yeah, that's I saw he, he told Donald Trump to never slide into the notifications <laughs> right. uh, on Twitter, and then I, I thought right after that he deleted his account or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's honestly it's with all the news uh, going on sports and otherwise, it's hard to keep up with any individual things, right? right. It's like a, the fire hose analogy comes yeah, back. Right. The, you know, Lucille Ball and the chocolates as they're going by, <laughs> trying to just get as many as I can, no understanding, I'm just going to miss Yeah, right. Chocolate. Did you, uh, with that story, did you go, did you do all the reporting right in a row, like from city to city to city, bar to bar to bar, or was it spread out over time? Um, most of it was one epic trip. One, uh, I... I'm trying to remember the order. I think it was Texas to Columbus to Los Columbus to LA to Las Vegas and then down to College Station and then back up to Dallas. Mm-hmm. I think that was all in one part, like one week. So this is like what I... it was. It was, but the, the reason I don't know for sure is because it was such a. In, foggy, exhaustive <laughs> right. trip. You know, at some point I was like, this kid's life is exhausting. Right. And that, I think that's one of the great things about the piece is that comes that comes cl- through so clearly. Uh, it, it, so, yeah, yeah. Um, what the, oh, oh, my mind just went blank. Um, I, I, uh, what, um, were you surprised by how you were received in, at the different bars that you went to? Um, yeah, in some ways I was surprised that people had such this kind of disdain for him. Um, you know, uh, I think everybody, uh, the thing that surprised me most is that everybody from like bartenders to like old security guards, not only had takes on their encounters with him and whether they thought he was rude or spoiled or whatever, but also that then like, his football playing ability too, right? Right. He, you know, a, a, a blackjack player, a blackjack dealer who is saying, you know, he can't believe that Johnny Manziel at his height is going to be able to throw over linemen. It's like, what? You know, <laughs> the, he, uh, you just dealt to him for a night. Like, what is this? He, he, you know, his. Now we're talking about his physical ability on the field. Right. Right. And it just, it, you know. And I'm, and he's the kind of kid who's at every advantage in the world. So it's really hard to pity him. But at some point, it's like, well, that's not exactly fair either. Yeah, this, it seems like this is the type of story that that I should hold up to my students and say, if you you, you could do stories like this if you want to be a reporter, uh, and that might actually maybe spark a few more journalists in the future. You think? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like stories where I can go and travel, see a bunch of different places, go to a bunch of different bars, have kind of a pretty good time and talk to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, those are fun stories to work on. Right. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, again, uh, Sullivan is like, uh, 
know, some sort of heavenly angel to offer me the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I mean, it is, it was the kind of thing that I was surprised that nobody else had been there. Right. You know, I'm, has anybody come and ask you about this night? No, never. Nobody here cares about that. Right. You know, um, that what, was the answer I got almost every place. Yeah. Um, you know, one other thing that is, is amazing about that piece is the illustrations as well. Um, oh, I they were just that. fantastic. I remember the name of the artist, but it was the same artist who had done uh, the illustrations for the New Yorker, for Gay Talese's Motel New Yorker story. Oh, right. The uh, the voyeur. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the art that they got for that. I thought that was so well done um, and considerably better than the writing, actually. I, thought, <laughs> I mean, I loved looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's uh, uh, let's talk uh, about Mayborn. Um, you're now a co-director of the Mayborn Literary Nonfiction Conference, uh, which is held every July in Grapevine, uh, Texas. And uh, I was wondering if maybe you guys you or you could talk a little bit about what you have planned for uh, for this coming year, this July. Yeah, so I think this is year 13, 12 or thirteen. Honestly, the fact that I don't know speaks to how many there've been, and right. I've been to every single one of them. It started. Uh, in 2005, and I was in that was my first year in graduate school mm-hmm. at UNT, and so it was just really lucky timing. Uh, and I have done almost every aspect of it, uh, from just regular attendee to entering the writing contest, which I strongly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, writing contests for unpublished nonfiction essays and nonfiction reported narratives, two separate categories. Uh, each category comes with first place $3,000. Second place, two thousand dollars. Third place, one thousand dollars. And the top ten are all published in a literary journal. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't win money, or if you do, whether you win money or not, you still have an unpublished story you can sell uh, at a conference full of editors who right. want to buy unpublished stories. Right. So it's it's uh, something that helped my career an enormous amount when I was younger, um, and I strongly recommend to everybody. And the conference itself is, uh, like you said, an annual gathering of a couple hundred people who care about this thing that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's great, you know, so a lot, it's kind of some part professional advancement conference, some part summer camp, some part family reunion. Um, and, uh, and it's always a good time. Yeah. I... And so far it's always been a great time. This year, uh, we have a pretty incredible lineup, uh, coming. So, some of the people uh, who have committed so far are Sebastian Younger, wow. uh, Catherine Boo, uh, Wright Thompson, uh, Charles Johnson, uh, author of Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, not the other, not the Charles Johnson, the troll, right. uh, on, or Charles Johnson from Little Green Football. Um, the guy who won the national, the, um, the MacArthur genius. Yes. Uh, Charles Johnson. Um, we have Sarah Heppola, uh, who had the best selling book Blackout last year. Mm-hmm. Um, Shane Bauer, who wrote the, uh, who had an incredible year from Mother Jones and did the embedded prison story and the embedded borders. I know. Uh, he, border like, fighter story. How does he, how did he, I don't, I don't understand how you follow up the prison story with another embedded story. And I hope he yeah, talks he is, about that. He is really, really great. Um, honestly, he's the one that I'm most worried something is going to come up because he's, things just cannot, yeah, I, I'm, I'm most worried. Uh, about his scheduling, right? Um, you know, he's. It was so hard to get him, um, and also, you know, his incredible journalism work is only one of the many interesting things about him. 
Shane was also uh, detained in Iran for a long time and held prisoner hmm. um, wow. when he was arrested after hiking. He was one of the, they were called the, the hikers, you know. Um, we also have uh, Gia Tolentino coming, Jason Fagoni, um, uh, Rachel Monroe, mm-hmm. uh, Brooke Jarvis. Um, we have a, yeah, a pretty incredible lineup, and we're still finalizing a lot of the, the other people. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's always going to be a lot of Texas monthly type people around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, uh, editors from, uh, most of the, or many of the national magazines, if not most of the mm-hmm. biggest coffee magazines. Um, and, uh, and a lot of book, edit- book editors, book publishers, uh, book agents. Um, there will definitely be a panel on, um, basically writing your first book, you know, oh, get going good. from concept to publish book. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I went this past year, 2016 was my first time there and it was fantastic. And, you know, if anyone's interested, I would highly recommend going to the conference as well. And I can't wait to get back there this summer. Yeah. It's going to sell out, I think, uh, probably pretty quickly. So, um, you know, it's definitely, it's, it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but it is definitely worth the investment, and uh, I, I just cannot imagine a, a better journalism conference. And I've been to a decent amount of them. And I've never been to anything like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also the fact that the conference is in great is in a hotel in July in Texas means that most people do not want to go outside most of the day. Right. <laughs> um, you know, one year it was actually like 112 degrees, which means that you have a bunch of the best writers in America mixing with working, you know, regular working schmo, right. you know, working schmoes like us, students, retirees who decided they want to start writing, um, all in one environment, all, you know, eating lunch together, at the bar together, um, just kind of hanging out in the halls. You know, we had Gay sitting in the back of the auditorium, just hanging out, watching, right. uh, you know, Skip Hollinsworth is just walking around, um, you know, talking to people about his incredible book and stories and all sorts of things. Uh, it's it's a really really cool place. Yeah, awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining the podcast again. Yeah, thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I hope I didn't sound too stupid. I've been talking with Michael J. Mooney. Mooney's a contributing editor for D Magazine and is the co-director of the Mayborn Literary Nonfiction Conference. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. You can also like us on Facebook. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, as well as SoundCloud. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English. Technical help is offered by Steve Cease. This episode was recorded and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.